Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. My guest today is Glenn Greenwald. He is the co-founder of The Intercept and a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. And I think it's fair to say that he is at the center right now of one of the most important stories and struggles in the world. In the last several months, Glenn and his team at The Intercept Brazil have exposed massive corruption at the highest levels of the Brazilian government. Leaks showing that uh, the current justice minister, Sergio Moro, was involved in a plot to jail Lula da Silva, the former president, which prevented Lula from running in the last presidential election and paving the way for the victory of the far-right leader Jair Bolsonaro, who then appointed Moro as super justice minister. For exposing this, uh, Glenn has been threatened with arrest and deportation. And as all this is happening and the story unfolds, we are now seeing the Amazon rainforest on fire at record levels as a result, arguably, of the policies of Bolsonaro. So when we talk about Brazil being in the midst of an existential crisis, I think that applies really to the entire world. So Glenn Greenwald, welcome to Pushback. I'm wondering uh, your thoughts on just how the fires right now are being received in Brazil and whether you think it's fair to attribute them to the policies of Bolsonaro. Yeah, I don't think I don't think it's fair to even question whether they're attributable to the policies of Bolsonaro. You can debate the extent to which they are attributable to those policies. There are certainly other factors such as droughts that are contributing. But one of the principal planks of the Bolsonaro campaign and of his ideology is this extreme free marketism that, for example, prevailed in Chile after Pinochet succeeded in rising to power and, and Bolsonaro's guru, his economic guru, Paulo Guedes, has explicitly said that he wants to replicate what was done in Chile in Brazil. He literally is from the Chicago school, not not metaphorically. He went to the University of Chicago and is very much in that tradition of privatizing and selling off um, and stripping down all public assets the way was, that was done in Chile to such great harm to the Chilean population. And so a big part of Bolsonaro's coalition, which people don't realize because they focused understandably on the part of his coalition that wants to return to military dictatorship, these kind of hardcore anti-communist warriors or the evangelical fanatics who are obsessed with things like uh, LGBT rights and and um, embracing Israel on religious grounds that a united Israel is necessary for the return of Jesus have overlooked the extent to which the the agricultural industry has, which is really strong in Brazil, um, beef and other uh, agricultural products are one of the most important exports, embrace Bolsonaro because of the role Paulo Guedes was going to play in his government. And so the idea of aggressively deforesting the Amazon was something that was very much a part of Bolsonaro's ideology as well as contempt for the indigenous tribes that have lived on that land for hundreds of years and who are often targeted with violence and murder when they try and protect their land from being taken over by miners or loggers or other industrial interests. Bolsonaro has expressed all kinds of contempt for the indigenous. He stripped the agencies that are designed to protect the Amazon and the people who live there of almost all of their budget, which has rendered them essentially inoperable. So when you combine 
aggressive deforestation under Bolsonaro, which the data shows is undeniably rapid. Um, and in the scientist who warned a month ago in Brazil that that was happening was fired by Bolsonaro and accused of being a conspiracist on behalf of uh, environmental groups trying to make his government look bad. When you combine aggressive deforestation with contempt for the indigenous, with the role that these agribusiness interests play in his government, there's no question that the destruction of the Amazon, including by just sometimes lighting the Amazon on fire. I mean, that is one way that deforestation happens is if you want to get rid of trees, you can just light the entire Amazon on fire. Um, and then just tearing down trees in general causes fires as well, that there's no question that ideology has played a key role in, in um, everything we're seeing. So let's talk about how we got here. Uh, your leaks about Operation Car Wash have gotten worldwide attention. What to you are the main revelations to have come out so far? So our Operation Car Wash is by far the most significant event in Brazilian politics over the last five years. It has dominated and shaped headlines almost the entire time. It began with what appears even to me to be, as a critic of it, to be well-intentioned. Namely, it is true that Brazil, not just on the right, but also on the left, has operated by systemic corruption for decades. It's just a fact, for example, if you want to do business on a big level in Brazil, um, it was necessary to take five or 10% of the transaction and put it into the Swiss bank accounts of the politicians in the Senate and the Congress and the various ministries who had the power to award you contracts. That was just how business was done. And this this operation, this investigation that began in a mid-sized town called Curitiba that almost stumbled into this by accident. They apprehended a money launderer who, as it turned, was just money laundering money through a car wash, which is how it got its name. And he essentially said when they caught him, I can expose corruption at the highest levels of government in exchange for leniency. And that was what began to unravel the corruption. Did some good things in the beginning. It put billionaires who are genuinely corrupt and very powerful politicians who are also corrupt from multiple parties into prison. And what it did was it turned the judge who was overseeing the entire process, Sergio Moro, as well as the young prosecutors led by the chief prosecutor, Delton Dallagnol, who's an evangelical Christian and it was often invoked religion as part of his um, explicit mission in terms of the prosecutorial zeal with which he's pursued these cases. It converted them into national heroes. And as a result, the media was petrified of questioning them. They would just put them on the magazine covers and in these like very hagiographic ways that everybody essentially was afraid to challenge or question anything they were doing. And as happens all the time with humans, given human nature, that power began to corrupt them and, and they began to view whatever it is that they did as justified, given how benevolent and heroic they believe themselves to be. And as the media was suggesting they were, and they clearly had an animus toward left wing politics in Brazil, um, as is true of all, most highly educated and rich Brazilians, they very much favored the Brazilian right and began to use the pretext of law and anti-corruption as a means of destroying the Workers' Party, the party of Lula and Dilma, which has dominated Brazilian politics for years. And, and what these leaks showed is that over the last three to four years, 
while they were doing the most consequential prosecution, which is the prosecution of two-term President Lula da Silva, who left office in 2010 with an 87% approval rating, who transformed Brazil, took millions of people out of poverty, and was leading the presidential race, according to all polls, by 15, 20, 25%, was almost guaranteed to be elected last year. They targeted him with the conviction that even to Lula's critics looked very dubious, the kind of case that they brought, the way they brought it, the speed with which it was prosecuted, the way they obtained an appeal, all very rapidly in time to render him ineligible to run for office. So they took out the leading presidential contender, which is a very grave thing to do in a democracy. They imprisoned him under very dubious charges. And what these leaks have shown was that the entire time they were doing that and other cases as well, the judge, Sergio Moro, the hero, the kind of priest of high ethics, was secretly collaborating the entire time with the prosecutors on how to build the case, on how to construct the charges, on how to make sure that Lula and others were found guilty and that the uh, convictions would be affirmed on appeal in time to render them ineligible. So they were basically breaking every rule, violating every law, because just like in the U.S., the judge is required to be neutral. You can't have a judge collaborating in secret. We have chats where they were explicitly saying that they would protect certain right-wing politicians, including another former president, uh, Fernando Enrique Cardozo, because he was an important political ally of theirs, and they didn't want to alienate him and his party by prosecuting him, even though the corruption that they found was very similar to the corruption they were accusing Lula of finding. So the revelations, the exposés we've been publishing have really called into radical and fundamental question what had up until this moment been this kind of epic hero story of these young prosecutors and this crusading judge that had been cleaning out corruption when in fact they were the ones who were corrupt the entire time. And what makes the story so you know, significant is that, as you mentioned, once Bolsonaro won, thanks to what Sergio Moro did in convicting Lula, he turned around and made Sergio Moro not just a, a justice minister, but as you said, a super justice minister. Moro, Moro really had more leverage than Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro needed Moro as kind of the linchpin of credibility with the middle class. And so Moro got whatever he wanted. And he, what he wanted was all of these agencies that had previously been dispersed, consolidated under his control. Powers of surveillance, of investigation, of monitoring, of arrest, of law enforcement. And it made Sergio Moro arguably, certainly the second most powerful figure in Brazil, but arguably the most powerful figure in Brazil, even more so than Bolsonaro, given his statures and the power that he had. And, you know, he's been like this kind of religious like figure in Brazil. You know, you walk by buildings and you would see murals of Sergio Moro on the wall. In Moro, we trust became a common Brazilian phrase. And so the fact that our reporting was essentially principally devoted to exposing Moro, not as an anti-corruption crusader, but as deeply corrupt and dishonest and even engaging in illegalities is why the reporting has become so dangerous and why it's provoked so much outrage because of the centrality that he um, plays and holds for this iconography of Brazil over the last five years, but also the credibility, the linchpin that he, he is for the, the Bolsonaro government. So I want to ask you about the U.S. role here. As we're speaking, a group of Democratic lawmakers have written a letter to Attorney General William Barr uh, with a series of questions about the U.S. role in Operation Car Wash. And this is something that Lula 
raised in your interview uh, that you did with him back in May. This was before these leaks came out. And Lula said that he believed that the U.S. Justice Department played a major role behind Operation Car Wash. Gay, I have clarity that everything that happened in this country, in da Lava Jato, foi para impedir que o Lula fosse candidato a presidente da República. Hoje eu tenho muita clareza, da mesma forma que eu tenho clareza que o Departamento de Justiça dos Estados Unidos está por detrás disso. Da mesma forma Tem evidência eu... para isso? Hein? Tem evidência? Eu Tem tenho, provas? Tenho, eu tenho só convicção. É por tudo. So that was Lula da Silva speaking to our guest, Glenn Greenwald, back in May. Glenn, I'm wondering your thoughts on this. When you asked Lula for any evidence, he didn't have any. He just said that that was his hunch. I'm wondering if your impression has changed at all in the aftermath of these leaks, what you think the possible U.S. role might have been, if there is one at all. Well, there's clearly a U.S. role. Um, the oil company, the state-owned oil company at the center of the corruption scandal, which is Petrobras, which not coincidentally was a major target of NSA spying back in 2013. That was one of the stories I was able to do with the leading Brazilian media outlet Globo was that the NSA was spying on Petrobras. That's one of the stories that made the biggest impact, one of the Snowden stories that made the biggest impact. On Brazil, the U.S. has a huge interest in Petrobras because it's one of the most important oil companies in the world. It has incredibly valuable untapped oil resources. It, uh, they were concerned, was doing business with Iran and wanted to monitor what Petrobras was doing, apparently interfere in what Petrobras was doing, obtain potentially the technology that they've developed for what's called pre-sol oil, which is this form of oil that can be extracted in ways that are much more profitable um, and then refined and sold in, in much more efficient ways. Uh, so we already knew from the Snowden story that the U.S. had a huge interest in Petrobras. Petrobras was at the center of the corruption scandal um, that we've been discussing that, that led to Operation Car Wash. And there are already Justice Department um, cases against Petrobras, against other Brazilian companies involved in this scandal, construction companies, where the prosecutors, the car wash prosecutors, reached agreements with the Justice Department about how to settle those cases. And those settlements involved billions of dollars in money from Petrobras and other Brazilian companies, Petrobras being a state-owned company, so you're talking about billions of dollars in public funds, and then billions of dollars in private funds trans being transferred to the Justice Department in exchange for settling a lot of these cases and a lot of the negotiations between the car wash prosecutors and the U.S. were done through the Justice Department. They wanted the approval of the Justice Department. There's other evidence as well that even Dilma's impeachment, which took place in 2016, which in retrospect, people are starting to realize was not only unjustified, but is what paved the way for Bolsonaro as much as Lula's conviction because it kind of codified this idea that the solution to Brazil's problems lies outside of the democratic framework. Doma had won a re-election in 2014, a very intensely contested election with the center-right candidate. And then 18 months later, they elected her, or they impeached her. 
based on corruption charges that in the context of Brazilian politics is the equivalent of jaywalking. And there's evidence that I wouldn't say the U.S. engineered that, but certainly the U.S. was involved in that, had approved of it, and at the very least collaborated with the key people who ultimately uh, led the charge for Dilma's impeachment. So you see U.S. fingerprints on everything that happens in Brazil. Obviously, nothing significant can happen in Latin America without U.S. approval. Um, I wouldn't say that the U.S. is behind all of this the way they were, for example, behind the 1964 coup that overthrew the center-left government that had been elected and imposed a 21-year military dictatorship on Brazil. But they were certainly involved in it to an extent which I think even now is a little bit unclear, but we can definitely say that they, they were involved. What to you explains the uh, hostility towards... Lula and Dilma on the part of Brazilian and U.S. elites. From the U.S. perspective, I can see, you know, this being a part of a overall plot to undermine, overthrow progressive governments in Latin America. And when you take away Brazil, you know, the biggest country, the, arguably the most important country, it's easier to do that. But on the part of Brazilian elites, I mean, you pointed out that they did fine, especially under Lula, who made a number of compromises to appease them. So what do you think explains the hostility here. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting and important for, you know, a Western audience to understand that both Lula and Dilma traveled a great distance ideologically and politically from their early days. So a lot of people assume the Workers' Party, because it's called the Workers' Party, because it was founded by Lula da Silva, who rose to prominence as a labor leader, who grew up in extreme poverty, didn't learn to read until he was 10, lost a finger in a factory where he was a laborer. Um, and then Dilma Rousseff, who was an actual Marxist guerrilla, she took up arms against the military dictatorship and was imprisoned by the military dictatorship and tortured by the military dictatorship that President Bolsonaro has repeatedly praised, that there's a perception that this is somehow some kind of left-wing party opposed to capitalism. Lula ran three times that this leftist candidate and lost three times. And he realized that he was never going to win because Brazilian oligarchical institutions were too powerful and had too much sway over public opinion unless he appeased them that he was going to be more cooperative with the oligarchs. And in 2002, which is when he finally run on the one on the fourth try, he selected as his vice president, the center right banker, who was beloved by Globo and the industrial interest. And he wrote a very famous, what's called letter to the Brazilian people, Carta ao Povo Brasileiro, that essentially promised that he was no longer the Lula of the past, that he had learned that he needs to um, fuel the machinery of capitalism and only through Brazilian economic growth and a capitalist context can the Brazilian four finally be uh, assisted. And that was very much how he governed for eight years. Um, you know, it's it's a very complicated uh, discussion because it is true that he pulled millions of people out of, out of poverty using programs that were really innovative and that were able to pass only because at the same time he was greasing the wheels of Brazilian capitalism. So in exchange for 
poverty programs that genuinely helped Brazil, Brazilian poor. He also was ensuring that the Brazilian stock market, that inequality remained unchallenged. So he gave up radicalism in exchange for very incremental gains. Um, and Dilma very much did the same thing. She was much more, by the time she was chosen by, by Lula to succeed her, much more of a kind of technocrat than she was an ideologue. Um, she didn't agree to do all of the austerity measures that were demanded of her, but she agreed to do a lot of them. They, both Lula and Dilma, were heavily criticized by environmentalists for helping to harm the Amazon through massive mining and, 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 and dam projects for hydroelectric facilities, for example. Um, the country's leading environmentalist, Marina Silva, who grew up in the Amazon, quit as as Lula's uh, environment environment minister in protest of his pro-industrial policy. So it's important not to think of the Workers' Party as this left-wing party. They're more like the Democratic Party. They, they really became neoliberal. You can say they did it because they were forced to do it to get things done as defenders of Lula and Dilma say, or you can say that they did it for their own power interest as critics of, of on the left of, of the workers party say, but they certainly did it. And that does lead to the question, why did the elites hate, why did the elites hate them so much given how well the elites did under, especially Lula. And when I asked Lula that his answer was, um, that it's really cultural that because under Lula, Poor people started, for example, to be able to afford plane tickets. And so the bourgeoisie and the upper middle class of Brazil, the white upper middle class had to go to the airport. And suddenly there were all of these previously invisible black people from favelas who were the first time had the money to buy air tickets or who could go to the same malls that it just became that this kind of cultural position of privilege that was being eroded and that was what was being blamed on the workers party so that even though the elites of brazil still did very well they felt threatened by some level of inequality erosion um i think there's some validity to that um there's always been this resentment that lula and doma were not the kind of people who should be running brazil that the people who should be running brazil are the kinds of people who were educated in the u.s who came from rich families who um, went to the best schools. There's definitely a cultural component to it. Um, but I think that the real story of why the Workers' Party ultimately gave way to Bolsonaro is that, like neoliberalism in so many places around the world, it just failed the interests of huge numbers of people. So by the time Dil uh, Dilma was in her second term, the, all of the advances or most of the advances made by Lula had been lost. People were suffering. Their jobs were disappearing. They saw income inequality growing again. They were the first in line to pay the price for the need to cut budgets rather than seeing taxes on the rich being increased so that income inequality and wealth inequality in Brazil is greater than any other democratic country in the entire world. And so they learned to hate the entire political system, which meant the Workers' Party, they didn't become racist and homophobic and homo and, LG and and misogynistic overnight um, or even at all. They just went into the arms of somebody who said that he hated the political system as much as they did, who promised to be an outsider to it and who they watched political elites despising, which was Bolsonaro. It's very similar to the dynamic about why so many people embrace Trump, not because of all of his horrible views, but despite them. And 
that really is the story of Brazil's ideology. It tracks in a, in a very um, obvious way the neoliberal failures in Western Europe, in the U.S., and, and what it's led to. Finally, Glenn, uh, for doing this reporting, for exposing Operation Car Wash, you've been threatened with arrest, investigation, deportation. You've been subjected to a number of homophobic attacks from the highest levels of the Brazilian government, you and your husband, David Miranda. You've also received an outpouring of support around the world. I'm just wondering your thoughts on the attacks you've received, but also the, the, the support you've gotten. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, David and I obviously um, went through the Snowden story um, and so have dealt with some degree of similar attacks in the past. We knew this is going to be different because the country we were angering in this case, the government we were angering is the one in the country we're in, as opposed to thousands of miles away, as was true of the Snowden case. And the Bolsonaro movement is driven overwhelmingly by hatred. Um, you remember they their primary belief is that things were better under the military regime than they were under democracy. The, the core members of the Bolsonaro regime do really crave a restoration of military dictatorship and the elimination of democracy, which they think is an inferior form of government because it allows poor people to make bad choices and to install left-wing governments that want to help them. So you're talking about a very radical and dangerous political movement that uses political violence um, and that have links to paramilitary gangs that rule Brazil. These paramilitary gangs are composed of former police officers, current police officers, and current and former members of the military with whom the Bolsonaro family has a very close connection. And so we knew this was going to be very dangerous um, reporting before we set out to do it. Um, I think one of the things I didn't quite anticipate was the extent to which it was going to all be personalized on me and David. Um, and I think uh, that has escalated the dangers, obviously. Bolsonaro, on many occasions, has by name said that I deserve to be in prison. David and I very personally became the faces of the story. I make a good villain for the Brazilian right because I am, even though I've lived here for 15 years, and have a Brazilian husband and two Brazilian children. I am technically a, a foreigner, so they call me a foreigner. I'm gay in a country that anti-gay animus is at an all-time high. And then I'm married to a left-wing uh, member of Congress on the Socialist Party, David. And so I kind of check up all the boxes for how a good villain is constructed from the perspective of the Brazilian right. And so they personalized the story on to me and to David in a way that has been quite dangerous, not just in terms of official threats, um, from the state to imprison me um, and criminalize uh, the journalism I'm doing, but also these kind of rogue gangs that do use violence very frequently for political ends. Um, but as you say, at the same time, the reporting that we've done has generated huge amounts of support here in Brazil. Um, you know, there's been civic society um, and all kinds of groups that defend free press, including, I have to say, the large Brazilian media, with the exception of Globo, that have united in our defense and have insisted that we not be punished in any way for the journalism we're doing. The Supreme Court issued a ruling barring any retaliatory investigations against me, which the Bolsonaro government reportedly had initiated. 
And so it's been gratifying at the same time as it's been, you know, somewhat intense um, because when you go into journalism or in David's case, when you go into politics, this is what you go in to do is to stand up to the people who are the most powerful. You know, it's very easy to pretend to be an anti-fascist warrior by tweeting meaning meaninglessly um, or by, um, you know, being in a country where you're expressing ideas that you tell yourself are radical, but in fact are very mainstream and that don't put you at risk. It's another thing to really have the opportunity, which we got when this source gave us this information to expose corruption at the highest levels of a right wing repressive and authoritarian proto-fascist regime. And so, you know, as dangerous as it is, um, and as difficult as it sometimes has has been for us personally, it's also been incredibly gratifying. This is what, um, as a journalist, I want most to be doing is is exactly this sort of work. Glenn Greenwald, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, co-founder of The Intercept. Thanks very much. Thank you, Aaron. Really appreciate your time. Mm -hmm.